You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Last week, I started working out with Coach Erwin Ince. After years of prodding, I finally made the transition from kettle chips and kettle corn to kettle bells. Now, we had our first two sessions over Zoom earlier this week, but Coach Irwin drew me up a workout plan for Friday that I was supposed to do by myself. So Friday comes rolling around, it's my day off, you know, I get up and have breakfast, I get ready, go down in the basement, I open up the program, and I start scanning through the workout. And so I see the warm-up, I do the warm-up, you know, I'm sweating, and I'm kind of ready to go. But then I look at the first exercise, the first real exercise, and I, I look and it says three sets of 30 kettlebell squats. They're called goblet squats, which is a squat that you do holding a kettlebell. And I said, that looks rough, but let's get it, right? So I get down, I get the kettlebell up, and I do the first set. And after the first set, I said, bruh, what? I do the second set. And after the second set, I said, he know he ain't right for doing me like this. (laughs) After the third set, I can't tell you what I said because we in the Lord's house. (laughs) Now, this was the first set in the workout. But when I tell you I was hurt, I ain't lying. I was hurt. Elijah came to check on me. He's like, are you okay? I was like, no, son, I'm not okay. (laughs) And then he disappeared. Now, (laughs) when I got up the next morning and I tried to get out of bed, I looked like a newborn baby giraffe trying to get my leg up. And I've been wobbling for the last two days because my body is in such pain. But here's the thing. After I finished the first part of the workout, I I went back to look at the program because it was time to reevaluate life. You know, I I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about the rest of this workout. And so I'm looking carefully at it, just wondering if something might magically, like, delete off of the page. And I look at that, that exercise again, and I realize something. I read the blasted thing wrong. (laughs) Coach Irwin told me to do three sets of 30 seconds of squats, which comes to about like seven or eight squats. And I read three sets of 30 reps, which was 90 squats, (laughs) y'all. 90. (laughs) I read the thing in the wrong way. And I brought all kinds of unnecessary pain (laughs) and exhaustion and difficulty into my life. Now here's the deal. A similar thing happens when it comes to the way we read scripture. Some of us come to the Bible and read it like an instruction manual for operating the human machinery. Others read it like Aesop's fables to get a moral of the story. And still others treat the Bible sort of like a chicken soup for the soul that's meant to give you a little bit of inspiration to pick you up through your week. Yeah. 
However, each of these ways of reading the Bible bring the pain and exhaustion of performance-driven moralism into our lives. These ways of reading scripture make it extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult to live in the world as God's beloved because they omit the true goal of the scriptures and they miss the intent of the divine author. As we've been working through this series on salvation's greatest hits, we have been exploring key passages of the Old Testament to see how these passages point us to the person and work of Christ and reshape our spirituality. We have been trying not only to just teach you what the, the scriptures say in particular passages, but to show you how you should interpret the scriptures, how you should read the Bible for your own edification. And part of the deep structure of this series, the choices of texts that I have made, is that we have been working through the three primary offices of the Old Testament. We have worked through the priestly office in the last couple sermons. But today we transition to look at the kingly office. And in future weeks, as we wrap up this series, we're going to turn to the prophetic office. Because these are the primary offices that show us the salvation of God. What it entails, what it's like, its different contours and dynamics. And so today, we're going to transition into this passage and take a look at our text in 1 Samuel 17. And 1 Samuel 17 shows us a fierce enemy, a fearful people, and a faithful king. Those are our three points for this morning. We're going to see a fierce enemy a fearful people, and a faithful king. So let's look at our first point where we see a fierce enemy. Now, right off the bat, we have to recognize that 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, is probably one of the most famous passages of the Bible. It's one of the first stories that we introduce to our kids. It's, it's well known, and, and it's known not just by Christians, it's known by people all over the world, regardless of where they're coming from in terms of their spirituality. It's known as being a, a, a neat story of overcoming the odds, the underdog story, right? When we watch different athletic events, we even hear sportscasters talk about this being a, a David and Goliath kind of battle. It's a very common passage. But what's often missing uh, is the context. And there's important context that really shapes our understanding of David and Goliath in this story, right? In chapter 15, we learn that the Lord rejects King Saul as the king. He rejects the kingship of Saul because when the Lord sent him out to a particular battle, Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. He didn't listen to the Lord. And so when we get to chapter 16, the Lord tells Samuel to go and conduct a private ceremony to anoint a new king. And he sends him to the household of Jesse the Bethlehemite, okay? He sends him to Jesse the Bethlehemite because he says that it will be among one of his sons that the king will be found, this new king. And it's in this chapter, chapter 16, that David is anointed. The Hebrew word for anointing is Meshach. And one who is anointed is Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah. And so what we see 
is one king or one Messiah who is insufficient, who is rejected by the Lord. But the Lord raises up a new Messiah, a new king. And so when we get to chapter 17, we see the stark difference between these two kings. It's in this passage that we see what a true king does. We, we learn something of the kind of king that we need. When we get to this passage for today, it begins by letting us know that the arch rivals of Israel at the time, the Philistines, have gathered together their armies for battle and they have encroached into Israel's territory. You notice at the very beginning that they are, they are in the territory of Judah. They are getting close. And so Saul gathers the men of Israel and they line up to go out to line up in battle against their arch rivals, the Philistines. But the tension of this story really builds when we are told in verses 4 through 10, take a look at it, that a massive and formidable man named Goliath came out from the Philistine camp to challenge any opponent from Israel to a one-on-one -on -one duel that would decide the fate of their respective armies. Just to contemporize this a bit, Goliath was bigger than Shaquille O'Neal. He was bigger than the big athletes that we see. I don't know what they're feeding these jokers today, but the, the big athletes in the NBA and in the NFL, like Goliath is an absolutely towering figure, an imposing figure, such an intimidation factor. He was giant. And not only does the text describe his massive physical stature, but it also goes into detail concerning his weapons and his armor. The author intends to impress upon the audience the human impossibility of anyone prevailing over Goliath. He is lingering over the details describing Goliath and his armor and his weapons so that he can give us a sense of the intimidating appearance of Goliath which builds suspense in the story. We, as the reader, are meant to start asking the question, what is Israel going to do about this dude? What are they going to do about this? However, in describing Goliath's armor, the narrator is actually tying us into the bigger story of Scripture and a particularly crucial theme. Now, if you rock with me for a quick second... It's going, to, it's going to really impact the way that you understand this story of David and Goliath. In verse 5, our ESV translation reads that Goliath was armed with a coat of mail. And I think this translation actually obscures something important here. It's better translated that Goliath was clothed with scale armor. In other words, we're getting a picture here of Goliath covered in scales like a fish or a reptile. If you look up the usage of this word in the Old Testament, the word is kaskasim. If you look up the usage of this Hebrew word, it's used to describe fish. It's used to describe reptiles. And in Ezekiel 29, it's used to describe Pharaoh in a reptilian fashion. And what I would suggest to you is that when we put this picture 
up a scale-covered enemy together with the battle context and the way that David likens Goliath to an animal, we rightly connect this passage to a key theme of salvation in Genesis chapter 3. In that passage, chapter 3, verse 15 of the book of Genesis, it's immediately preceding the fall of humanity. The Lord tells the serpent who led Adam and Eve astray, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. Genesis 3 is the Lord's announcement that there will be an enduring cosmic conflict through the ages between the offspring of the kingdom of God and the offspring of the kingdom of Satan. And all people will belong to one of these two kingdoms. There is no middle ground. So when we come back to 1 Samuel 17, we're supposed to situate this story in the bigger cosmic conflict. The people of Israel are the offspring of the kingdom of God, and they now stand up against the scale-covered Goliath, who is rightly understood as a fierce enemy who represents the kingdom of Satan, the forces of evil, and everything opposed to the Lord and his people. That's meant to situate us. And this brings us to our second point, where we see a fearful people. Now, a very common interpretation of this story in Sunday schools and pulpits across America encourages us to be like David. You should be like David. According to this interpretation, we can face our giants in our lives by faith in God. We can courageously achieve victory just like King David. We're encouraged, think about this, we're actually encouraged to read ourselves into the role of the royal hero and to take up this mindset in our lives. But is this where we are to find ourselves in the text? Is it? Whatever truth there may be to this idea, the simple fact is that this is not the point of this passage. And this is not where we are to find ourselves in the story. If you want to know where we are to find ourselves in the story, look at verses 11 and 24. Verse 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Family, this is where we find ourselves in the story. Utterly outmatched by our enemy, fearful, weak, on the run, incapable of achieving victory in the battle, absolutely overwhelmed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where we find ourselves. There are no heroics. Sound interpretive principles and an honest look at our own lives tells us very clearly that we have no business placing ourselves in the role of the royal hero. We should see ourselves in the fearful Israelites who helplessly stand on the sidelines until the king shows up. 
to fight our battle for us. We're going somewhere. In this text, all of Israel's hopes for freedom, all of Israel's hopes for getting out of the place of fear and terror, all of Israel's hopes for a future are fixated on the king who goes to battle for them. They aren't there mustering up the nerve. They are cowering in fear. And the king must step in to fight for them. The good news is not that we can muster up the faith and strength to defeat our giants. The good news is that we can fix our hopes on our king who has already defeated our scale-covered enemy. Which leads us to our final point, a faithful king. David comes on the scene as the anointed king who will prove to be a better king than Saul. Because if you notice, one of the reasons why we can see that Saul is disqualified to be the king of the people is because the king was responsible for defending his people. He was responsible for supporting the vulnerable. He was responsible for maintaining and upholding his people in righteousness and protecting them from their enemies. But where is Saul? The man who was initially sticking out to the people because he stood head and shoulders above them is now sort of is now sort of hiding I'm still sore (laughs) y'all sometimes I forget is now ducking down and hiding himself in the midst of the people kind of acting like I don't know who's going to do something about this it was on him but he proves himself to be a faulty and failed king so David steps up and proves himself to be a better king than Saul. From a human standpoint, though, he is a lowly and unlikely choice for king. But in the eyes of the Lord, he is a man after God's own heart. He is a shepherd accustomed to caring for his flock, feeding his flock, and putting himself at risk for the well-being and protection of his flock. Just as he rescued the sheep from the beasts, so will he rescue God's flock. From Goliath. He has unrivaled zeal for the Lord, and he is confident that the Lord will give him victory over the enemy so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And when he finally goes out to battle with the enemy, he goes into battle vulnerable, wearing only the spiritual armor of God. And in the end, he not only crushes the head of Goliath with the weapon of a shepherd, the sling, but he kills him with his own weapon. And it's only after this anointed shepherd king wins the victory that his people rise up with a shout and join him in finishing the job. It's only after, not before. Family, this passage is a microcosm of the greater redemptive drama that was initiated in Genesis 3 and continues through Revelation 22. It foreshadows the person and work of Christ the King, the seed of the woman, the son of David, who came into the world, we're told in the Gospels, to destroy the works of the devil. You see, the Son of God came on the scene as the anointed king, who would prove to be a better king than even King David. 
From a human standpoint, he was lowly and an unlikely choice for king. But Isaiah 53 tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But in the eyes of the Lord, he was a man after God's own heart because he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus himself told us that he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is accustomed to caring for the flock, feeding the flock, and putting himself at risk for the well-being and protection of his flock. He will rescue his flock from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus had unrivaled zeal for God, and he was confident that God would give him victory over the enemy so that his gospel could go out to the ends of the earth and all the peoples of the world from every tribe and every tongue and every nation would know that there is a God in the heavens. And when he finally did go out to battle with the enemy, he went into battle vulnerable, submitting to the mockery and the sufferings and the dishonor of his enemies. But in the end, though his heel was crushed, though his body was broken in the conflict, Jesus not only crushed the head of the serpent, but he defeated the devil with his own weapon, the cross. That instrument of torture was one of the machinations of the evil one who never ceases to devise ways to degrade the image of God. But Jesus used his own weapon to defeat him. And Jesus, this is the beautiful thing. The text of 1 Samuel 17 continues to reiterate that David did not use the sword. And Jesus did not use violence or the sword to accomplish the coming of his kingdom. He is the king of peace. And he accomplished his work of redemption through the means of peace. And it's only after we see and believe the victory of Christ over the world and over the flesh and over the devil that we are able to rise up with a shout and join him in finishing the job of overturning the works of the devil. Do you understand that that is one of the lenses through which we are to understand Christian mission? Our mission is very similar to what happens in this passage after David strikes down Goliath. The people look around and they see that the fierce enemy has been defeated. And so they rise up to finish the work. They rise up to finish the work. In union with Christ... We overturn the devil's work of enslaving people to sin by sharing the good news of Christ the liberator. We overturn the devil's work of accusation with gospel affirmation. You are loved. You are wanted. You are welcomed. That's our message. We overturn the devil's work of degrading the image of God by dignifying the image of God. We overturn the devil's work of sowing violence and division by pursuing peace, forgiveness, repair, and unity. We overturn the devil's work of estrangement and alienation by setting the table for hospitality 
and communion. You can either exhaust yourself by trying to be like David, or you can look in faith, hope, and love to the son of David for his transforming work in your life. Those are your two options in the Christian sphere. You can wear yourself out trying to be like David and recognize that you don't have the resources to live up into that and realize that you're going to continually fail and flop and get depressed and feel beat up. Or you can look to the son of David and be transformed by his grace from one degree of glory to the next. Our hope, friends, is not in our ability to conquer our giants. That is not our hope. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about you going out to battle. Our hope is that we have been caught up into the cosmic victory of Christ Jesus. We've been caught up into his victory. Now look, 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 look. You might be like, what's that actually mean? How, like, wait, 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 wait. Break it down right quick. Well, in 2019, the Washington Nationals won the World Series. And this city was lit. It was, everyone was hype. We were celebrating, wearing all of the gear, all of the uniforms, the, the, the jerseys and the hats. But the funny thing is, as they narrate one of us, through one pitch. We didn't have one at bat. We didn't make one play. We didn't, we didn't have one inning under our belts. And yet and still, we celebrated the victory. Why? We were caught up into a victory that we did not win. And that is the good news of the gospel. You know, there was a, there was a guy in media named Ted Turner. And he created quite an uproar when he announced that Christians... And anybody who believed in Christianity, he said that Christianity was for losers. And all these Christians got all up in arms and got all bent out of shape. And they said, oh, what do you mean Christianity's for losers? We're not losers, we're winners. But they missed the whole point. He was right. Christianity is for losers. But this is the means by which losers are caught up into the victory by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what gives God the glory alone. You may feel like a loser today. Things may not be working out in your life. Your career might not be going in the direction that you wanted. You might be suffering through frustrations and disappointments. And, and it's just, you feel like your life isn't turning out to be the dream that you had back in the day. God's message for you is that you don't have any need to despair. Can you fix your eyes and your hope and your love and your faith on the king who went to battle and defeated your greatest enemy so that you could live in the beauty and power of his victory? That is the invitation for us. 1 Samuel 17 is not good advice about how to conquer your giants. It is the good news that your king has already won the battle for you and you've been caught up into his victory, so now you can celebrate. That means that joy is our inheritance. Can you imagine what it was like for Israel on the sidelines when they saw, like, in, in absolute disbelief? They're, like, I picture Israel like this. They see this little guy going out to battle against this giant. And when David gets to swing in that sling, he's like... And they see Goliath fall like I fell after my third set of 30 reps and hit the ground. And then David runs 
takes Goliath's sword. Whap! Can you imagine the emotional expression that Israel had? That's why it says that they rose up with a shout. That's why we're invited in the Psalms to shout. Because on this side of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and current session of Jesus Christ, we have every reason to shout. We have every reason to celebrate the victory. That belongs to us now through union with Christ. Let me close with this. Theologians tell a story to illustrate how Christ's triumph presently benefits our lives. Here's the story. Imagine a city under siege. The enemy that surrounds the city will not let anyone or anything leave. And the supplies are running low and the citizens are fearful. But in the dark of the night, a spy sneaks through the enemy lines. He has rushed to the city to tell the people that in another place, the main enemy force has been defeated. The leaders have already surrendered. The people do not need to be afraid. It's only a matter of time until the besieging troops receive the news and lay down their weapons. And as we sit in this church today, we may feel surrounded and outmatched by the forces of evil, disease, injustice, oppression, and death. But the enemy has actually been defeated at Calvary. Things are not the way they seem to be. It's only a matter of time until it becomes clear to all that the battle is really over. Let me tell you one more. At my house, when we bought our house, there is a giant oak tree. It's a heritage tree. Not allowed to cut it down. Uh, it's there. And when we bought the house, there was a vine that had grown up around this massive towering oak tree. And it was choking the tree out. And so what, what I had done was had an arborist kind of person come out and they cut that vine. They cut it right at the very bottom and they separated that vine so it no longer was connected to the ground. Now here's the thing. From that point, that ivy began to die. However, it still clung to the tree. But over time, it started to crumble. And what I need you to see today is that the victory of Jesus was the severing of the root. And we may still see the ivy clinging, but it's crumbling day by day as we head toward the fulfillment of all things. So, let us repent of our cynicism. The king has won. Let us resist worldliness and the spirit of the age which tells us that our most pressing issues can be solved without God through our technologies and our political will. Let us pray for endurance and courage to let our fearful neighbors know that the enemy is defeated and they too can be caught up into the victory of Christ. As the reformer put it in the hymn that he wrote, 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.